This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Anne Giblin Gedact, Assistant Professor of History in the Department of History at Seton Hall University. Dr. Gedact is currently completing a manuscript entitled Turning North Migration, Mobility, and Identity in Japan's Tohoku Region, 1872 to 1937. Dr. Gadek, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can you tell us how the Meiji period, or the Meiji Restoration more specifically, intersects with your research? Absolutely. Um, As I always joke with my students, I don't really study the Meiji Restoration. I do study the Meiji Revolution, because I study the Tohoku region. And as anyone who's been listening to your podcast knows well by now, is that the people from the northern regions in Japan were loyalists to the Tokugawa shogunate. But really, what my work looks at is the way that this region in the northeastern part of Japan becomes a peripheral area throughout the modern period. And there's often this narrative of Tohoku backwardness, of how people from this region are sites of traditional immobility. And I want to deconstruct that narrative by looking at mobilities themselves and trying to understand and trace ways that different individuals from these six prefectures actually led highly mobile lives and how that then shaped internal understandings, domestic Japanese understandings of regional identity. And so this idea of Tohoku as a backwater, it's a complicated story uh, that the modern period, as Nathan Hobson wrote a really wonderful book recently, Ennobling of Japan's Savage Northeast. But what you can do is you can begin to trace the ways that in the Tokugawa period, you have mixed representations of the Northeast. Mutsu and Dewa domains were very prominent in politics. You know, you have Aizu domain and Sendai domain, but you also have Basho. And Basho, when he's talking about the narrow road to the deep north, talks about these little islands of civilization that are within a wider sea of wilderness and frontier spaces. You know, you have his haikus talking about sleeping with a horse next to him, peeing on the ground, and then also the beautiful grandeur of the different religious spaces that he enters into. But while you have both that combination of wilderness frontier, but also prominence in politics and culture, you have then the moment of the Meiji Revolution. And after the Meiji Revolution and the Boshin Civil War, you have this region and its leaders really on the wrong side of history. And they become recast, particularly within Meiji dialogues um, from governmental centers, as a region with much less prestige, both politically and within the cartographic landscape of Japan, it all shifts. And this is both intentional and unintentional consequences of the Meiji Restoration, I would argue. You know, you have intentional programs trying to reduce the prestige of these clans that were not loyal to the Meiji change, particularly of Hans being divided with Sendai Han, instead of becoming just following the regular boundaries, it gets divided into Miyagi as well as a small area of northeastern Fukushima and a small portion of southern Iwate. And you have repeated legislation coming out time and again that is talking about the underdevelopment of Tohoku and the need to create development projects there. 
And that's all intentional, I would argue, and other scholars also have argued. But there are also unintentional consequences, like the annexation of Hokkaido becoming a space where it's now Japan's eternal frontier, right? Hokkaido becomes this northern boundary of Japan, like what David Howell talks about in Geographies of Identity, but it's not. Tohoku used to be that northernmost space. And so I also am looking at how this Meiji transition and the redrawing of map lines result in the space becoming a frontier in transition. It's an internal space instead of an external space. So things that would have been seen as part of this rugged identity within the frontier space, I mean, civilizing the periphery becomes just an interior backward space. Like the works of Kawanishi Hidamishi, where he's talking about how Tohoku becomes cast as the colony of the center, is actually one of the first colonial nation-building projects is to take Tohoku and make it more, quote-unquote, Japanese. You see similar things coming about uh, during the Meiji period. That's interesting. So there's almost a kind of punitive peripherality that the Meiji state is constructing in Tohoku? I mean, that's an argument that um, some scholars have made, and I actually also do ascribe to, that there is, especially when you start reading the documents about recruiting individuals from Tohoku region, uh, particularly from Sendai Han, like the Date families, who are going up and moving as part of the Kaitakshi's projects of Tondenhei, or soldier settlers. There are some people saying, should we really be moving all of these people who disagreed with us to the north uh, where they could maybe have more power? And other people saying, oh, they're just going up to this edge. They're, we're going to be taking them away from their power bases. We'll actually be decreasing their power. So that along with the redrawing of lines, which you could argue was kind of a breaking up of almost like, you know, Han nationalism in order to like break apart these communities. A number of scholars, myself included, would say that, yeah, there is a punitive aspect. Often when talking about early modern Japan, people will point out, you know, Hokkaido wasn't really present in the spatial imaginary of Japan. And in fact, you could point to a number of maps where Hokkaido is just kind of left off the map. But there's even some where the Tohoku region just kind of drifts off into the ether. You mentioned that Tohoku is kind of this peripherality in the making. Can you talk about what is the position of Tohoku leading up to the restoration? And then what makes it this peripheral area? I mean, absolutely. I think that one of the ways that I often will talk to students about it and is this idea of Japan and Japanese civilization as a marching frontier. And the marching frontier, you can go all the way back to the Nara period, right? You can go back to the reason why we even call it a shogun, right? The shogun comes from, you know, the barbarian subduing generalissimo that is fighting off the emishi as it continually marches forward north. And when you see these shifting maps, uh, particularly in the Edo period, what would become Tohoku, which is Mutsu and Dewa, they are just these kind of, you know, get much smaller, very clearly established Hans. And then you just get these large swaths that are taking up all of the northern part of Honshu Island. And I think it fits in with this dual identity during the Tokugawa era of Mutsundewa um, of the O region that is both this marching frontier with the Japanese that are living in those Han, especially somewhere like, say, Sendai Han, which has such a huge population of Bushi 
one of the largest in you know the entire state at that point, you know, they're settling this frontier. And in there are even some Tokugawa missions where they send people from the Date clan up to try to colonize different areas in Japan's north. And so there is this martial aspect of settlers taming a wilderness. And but it, at the same time, you have very, very powerful clans that are tied to you know, the ins and outs and the goings on of the central government and have a lot of sway and influence in the Bakufu. So you have this contrasting image of both settling a frontier that is progressively moving north, but you also have very, very powerful families and lots of money in the north as well. You've mentioned a few times the colonization of Hokkaido. And and of course, 2019 marks the 150th anniversary of the colonization. And I've had several guests talking about that process. Is a similar thing happening to Tohoku? Yes and no. There are some excellent local histories that do talk about the attempts to bring colonizers, basically, um, from other areas, quote-unquote, overpopulated areas in Japan, and resettling them into spaces in, I'm remembering, in, like, Fukushima. But largely, my work, at least, is talking more about this intermediate stage, which is not looking at, say, the Ainu in Hokkaido as a colonized space, but looking at the colonizer that in some ways is from a space being colonized, right? So you have, it's looking at those individuals that are colonizing Hokkaido because the you know plurality of settlers in Hokkaido come from the Tohoku region. And so it ties in with my idea of this borderland and transition where you have an outgrowing and an outpouring of a number of individuals from this newly cast area that is internally becoming a colony of the center into this new frontier space. Speaking of the settling of frontier areas and and the settling of borderlands, I understand you also make a number of case study comparisons to other cases of settler colonialism around the globe. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've been striving to do with this project is to take three different phenomena of mobility and put them into the same lens. So looking at nation building, particularly with colonization of Hokkaido, and then also look at international migration between sovereign states with Japanese migrants going to places like California, Victoria and particularly Vancouver and Canada, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, particularly the island of Mindanao, and seeing how and taking that usually seen as very much an international and diplomatic histories or something that's in the ethnic history of the receiving nation, taking that, putting it with settler colonialism in Hokkaido, and then bookending it. So I've Hokkaido at the beginning. And then at the end, I look at the colonization of Manchuria and the way that you see people from this region becoming instrumental in the movement to populate Japan's empire. And so we can put Japan into this conversation of global settler colonialism. I think so. I think that the challenge with that is that you don't necessarily want to walk down a road where you say that 
the immigration policies and the immigrants that were going to other sovereign states were actually trying to colonize those places, right? You don't want to create a scenario where you're talking about, even though sometimes the language expressly does state colony, where you have Japanese trying to take over the world um, by planting blood and soil through peaceful migration. That being said, I think that they're all part and parcel of larger dialogues of mobility and different ways that the ebb and flow of human bodies can tell us a lot about the way that the larger global um, interactions, the notions of what is Japan and the notions of how the Japanese individual state or region can fit within these larger trends. That's a really good point about making a distinction between the settler colonialism and the settlers themselves. Maybe the settlers who do migrate, we might be hesitant to include them in a larger imperial project. But then again, I think this comes down to a distinction between the the way that the term settler colonialism is used sometimes. Because if you look at the migration of Japanese residents to Busan in South Korea, with a very large Japanese community prior to colonization. And some people would say, well, you know, keeping in mind that Japan annexes Korea in 1910, there is this kind of teleological view that, well, clearly this is some kind of antecedent to colonization later. But then on the other hand, that's a different process than, say, the colonization of Hokkaido, that kind of internal colonization, isn't it? I think it is very different. But I think that if you look at it, Because I'm looking at the creation of a regional identity and the way that these mobilities shape internal and domestic Japanese politics and policy and um, identity formation, that by doing that, you're able to look at things that, in theory, become very challenging. If you can't compare apples to oranges, but you can within this larger idea of just the mobile body. Um, Mm. And, you know, some scholars have actually, you know, gone as far as to try to draw more clear overlapping lines between them. For example, um, Eiichiro Azuma, in a really stunningly um, complex and interesting essay that he did in the Journal of Asian Studies, talked about pioneers of overseas Japanese development. And he was talking about the way that in the 1930s, people mobilized this idea of early Japanese migration to California in particular, and looked to that and said, look, they were not necessarily going to colonize America, but they had this idea of expanding the Japanese sphere of influence and trying to get Japan as a nation larger and wider boundaries. Um, And so in the 30s, you have this reuse and reappropriation of immigrant myth in order to back up the 1930s project of settler colonialism in, say, Manchuria. Almost a Japanese manifest destiny, it sounds like. I'm scared to say yes, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned before that you're also interested in the formation of regional identity and how this really plays into politics of nation building within Japan. Yes, absolutely. I think that one of the most interesting aspects that my work is beginning to really reveal is how regionalism matters. And in some ways, it's almost a well, duh moment, because when you think about the fact that, yes, different regions in America, different regions in 
Spain, different regions in Japan all have their own backgrounds and their own customs, then of course regionalism should matter. But I find that especially with talking to my students um, or people with only a cursory understanding of the historiography of Japan, there's such a clinging to this idea of Japanese homogeneity. And that when you talk about Japan and the Japanese, it is about a people. And that is, of course, a product of the Meiji era and on. It's a product of nation building. And so what my work is trying to do is it's trying to reinsert the idea of regionalism as an additional layer of identity. And I find that by looking beyond the actual cartographic region of Tohoku, it becomes so much more clear to see how that construction happens. So for example, in my chapters dealing with international migration, I talk about the creation of little Tokyos and these little mini micro Japans that emerge throughout the Pacific and how once people from the Northeast were to cross the ocean and wind up in, say, Canada, they suddenly are in very tight quarters initially with many people from all over Japan, right? They're all migrants. But suddenly things like dialect really become an issue. And I use the idea of like Salikoko Mufwene, who's talking about the founder principle. And it was the migrants to these areas, the first migrants that set this cultural template for what it is to be, quote, Japanese. And many of these people came from Hiroshima, from Wakayama, and from the southern areas, um, the southwestern areas of Japan. And even in the Meiji era, those areas were seen as peripheral, right? They're not this new Japanese-ness that's supposed to be taking shape in Tokyo, um, they speak a very different regional dialect. They have some different uh, cultural traditions. But for the people from Tohoku, when they show up there, even though the majority of the migrants that I study are actually of the upper middle class and they're well-educated, they are seen as stupid. They are seen as backwards because they, quote, don't speak Japanese. Even if they speak the language that's becoming standardized that would be well understood in Tokyo, if they speak that or native language, uh, the native dialect of Zuzuben or Tohoku dialects, they are seen as not being Japanese because they're not the same as those original migrants. So what happens in these overseas communities is you see the creation of Kenjinkai, uh, which are prefectural associations, and occasionally even Tohoku Jinkai. So it's about the whole region of Tohoku mm-hmm. where you have them coming together because at least it's not easy necessarily to understand each other because there's a lot of regional differentiation when it comes to dialectical change in Tohoku, but it's closer than everyone else. So they come together where they can begin to kind of create this idea of what it is to be from Tohoku because they can see the difference, right? They're like, we're not the people from Wakayama and we know this because of X, Y, and Z. And so you can then track how, in some senses, in some cases abroad, these people are Japanese. They are viewed as the Japanese immigrants, the Japanese laborers from the outside by other immigrant communities, by the nation states, their host nation states. But internally, there are all of these divisions that are driving different politics and placement of individuals with jobs the ability to really socially understand each other really become very stark 
abroad. And so through that, you can begin to see this understanding and reckoning of what it means to be from Miyagi Prefecture, from Akita Prefecture, or more broadly, from Tohoku. Speaking of your students, how are you bringing this regionalism into your classroom as you teach about the Meiji period to decenter these Tokyo-centric narratives? It's something I am always really striving to do. And one of the ways that I start with it really is actually how I teach the Meiji Revolution. And we talk about the politics of naming when we are talking about this period. And by me drawing their attention to the fact that some people will call it a coup, some will call it a restoration, and some will call it a revolution, begins to teach them the point of view and the way that that can shift and change. And then from there, I will shift quite quickly into talking about it as a restoration, because that brings into the fore this you know, creation and this genesis amnesia, to borrow from Bordeaux and Takfujitani's work, so I start with that. I also try to make it a point when I'm teaching to bring in different regional narratives at different points. So I always tell my students that, you know, Tokyo is an exceptional case. And it just is that, right? It's an exceptional case. It's not the norm everywhere. But when you're teaching a modern survey, you don't have the ability, unfortunately, to dig in deep into any different region specifically. But I do try to always add those additional narratives coming from other places and ask students to kind of stop and turn to what would this be seen from a second tier city? What would this be seen from the countryside by a farmer? And to try to get those multiple perspectives placed within the narrative. One of the topics I keep coming back to in these episodes is, is 1868, this moment of rupture and continuity. And, and you've mentioned several times that you prefer the term Meiji Revolution. Could you elaborate on why you choose that term and how it fits into this question about continuity versus rupture? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing that I, you you get a bunch of Japanese historians in a room together. And at some point, they might come down to the question of, gosh, we've been talking about this forever. Do we even care anymore? <laughs> right. And in some ways, you know, the answer to, is it a point of rupture and change? The answer is, of course, yes and no. I like to use the idea of Meiji Revolution when I'm teaching in particular because it does help place perspective. And it helps my students to understand the importance of naming and how that really can come from, you know, the winners and the losers of history. But I also think that when we're looking at this particular issue with regards to pedagogy, that it's important to, particularly in the American classroom, really try to highlight how it is an outgrowth of an earlier domestic Japanese history, as well as international history. Um, I also teach world history. And when I talk about the Meiji Restoration there, I do use restoration, because most of them know, but I often will actually talk about it more as a Meiji coup, because I place it next to things like what's happening in Italy, just, you know, a few years later, um, and in Germany, where you have these complete shifting and changing and unification 
that are all coming about because of civil wars. You have the unification of Germany, the unification of Italy, um, which actually uses the term revival. Um, and you even have this shift towards centralization of government in those three examples, as well as in America. This is right around the same time as the American Civil War. And that results in a shift of power towards a strong central government. When we line up the Meiji Restoration or to these other revolutions around the world, what could we say is the significance of the Meiji Restoration compared to those? Well, I mean, I think that, especially speaking as someone who, when you teach world history, you always want to find the way to be able to also teach to your passion. And for me, that's Japan. And that's my, you know, that's my solid resting place and where my heart is. I try to look for ways to incorporate Japanese history into a global history. And I do think that one of the most fascinating things about the Meiji Civil War is that it does coincide with all these other civil wars around the world. And this reshaping of the world into what would become the basis of the nation states that we will see go to war a couple of times over the next hundred years. Uh, so just looking at the axis, right, you have the unification of Germany in 1871. And this is following after years where you have all these different German federation after the Holy Roman Empire. And they sit down and actually declare that William I of Prussia is the Ru the German emperor. And they do so. And it, over the next you know few decades have to work on creating national symbols of unity. Um, and to transform all these different principalities into the nation state that becomes Germany um, and formulate that Germany identity. Um, within Italy, you have that revival or resurgence, which is also in 1871. And they do something so interesting when you're taking it and putting it next to the Meiji Revolution, right? Or the Meiji Restoration, I should say, because they point to the Roman Empire. They point to this underpinning history that every, all these different states on the Italian peninsula can have as a basis, and they can come back together as the Kingdom of Italy. And it ties to this idea of nationalism and patriotic romanticism. So I like to do it that way. I like to think of it not necessarily as influencing, because I don't think there's a direct one-to-one -one correlation where the Meiji Restoration creates a firestorm. I think that it's part of larger projects that are happening at roughly the same time period. And I'm not sure what all of that means. I, t I pose that to a question to my students is what can we, what can we understand? These are all happening at the same time. They're not necessarily part and parcel of the same person's brainchild, but they are happening at the same time. And what can we think about that? And as with regards to, you know, Meiji modernization, I do think that within the larger world history, you can definitely talk about the way that Japan becomes the model, right? The model of the non-European, non-white power that modernized, right? The success story. And you see that with the Ottomans. The Ottomans loved to point to Japan as the model. You've got works by people like Rene Waringer has a great article or yeah, it's a book chapter, I think, out about that. Um, talking about this fascination with the rapid modernization of Japan and the way that particularly post-Russo-Japanese war, the Japanese were able to defeat Russia. And for the Ottomans, that's kind of a big deal, right? They have been dealing with the Russian empire harassing Muslims in Central Asia for generations, and the Japanese accomplish it. So 
Japan, especially after the Russo-Japanese War, becomes a model for a large portion um, for multiple different places uh, globally as a possible model for modernization. And speaking of the consolidation of Germany, the Risorgimento in Italy, and the kind of industrializing projects that each of these places are going through in order to establish these new nations, really. I mean, this whole narrative of Japan as a late developer, latecomer, kind of dissipates because Japan's doing the exact same things at the exact same time. And you don't really see that until you start lining up all of these political events on a more global scale. Exactly. I mean, so often when you speak to a Europeanist, they'll say, Japan is so late, right? They were, they were in the early modern period up until the mid 19th century. And then if you stop and really look at what's happening in Europe, it does make you stop and think about this idea of the nation state and the rise of nationalism in particular, because when we look down the line, the nations that really, I mean, are we tying this idea of early modern in Europe just to enlightenment ideas to industrialization? I mean, where where does that really come from? Are we looking at it about the rise of the nation states? Does that really go back to the American Revolution, the French Revolution, or is it tied to perhaps this creation of a modern national subjectivity and the creation of those things that people can kind of hang their hat on and say, I am from such and such place? And Italy Germany and Japan, you know, the Axis <laughs> powers. But, you know, even I also like to think of it sometimes as new imperialism, too. You know, you've got Japan, Germany and the American Civil War are all taking place right around the same time. And from there, you begin to see this shift towards outward looking imperialism. And so this is partly why I see it's so important to understand the boundaries of Japan as being not just the juridical cartographic bounds of the islands that we consider Japan, but it's also about the movement of people and the movement of ideas and interactions on a much more global scale. So that's why for me, the creation of say a regional Japanese identity in the modern period in Tohoku is very much tied in things that happen beyond the borders of that area because it's about the people and it's about the way that they are considering their own self-identity. And it is even more interesting when you look at the continued usage um, over time of an idea of Tohoku as being a bastion of tradition, a bastion of backwater heartland of Japan, you have that. But if you look at the actual way that people in the region of Tohoku are imagining themselves, you can see that it's tied instead to much more global and international ties and to the lives of people who have lived far beyond the borders of Japan. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>